I think Confucius said it, muddy water let stand becomes clear. Little haiku. Muddy water let stand becomes clear. I think it's very evocative, very, very helpful kind of thing to remember because in a way it describes our practice here on retreat. You know, where we just come, we put ourselves in the right situation. We have enough wisdom to know to be here. The wisdom gets us here. And then we we just sit and we just walk and we just are and we just listen deeply. And things clear up. We notice things that we haven't seen before. We become aware of different aspects of ourselves that we haven't been in contact with before. We discover some of our um, patterns and habits that have been until now seen as absolute reality and that which has not been able to shift or change because we think it's actually how things are. It's reality itself. And then we come on retreat and we begin to question and investigate and see, well, no, it's just a pattern. It's just a tendency. It's not who I am. It's not a description of myself. And so things begin to clear. Now there's a clarity that begins to emerge in letting stand or letting sit or letting lie down or (laughs) letting walk. (laughs) I'm still still on with the nag here. You'll hear it, you know, as you go home, walking, walking. Anyway, (laughs) so this is our practice here on retreat. And I think it's so important to remember that it's actually our practice when we go home, too. It's really no different. The forms here are so helpful and so supportive. As much as we push against them and resist them and, you know, think that maybe we should have just three walkings a day or, you know, two sittings a day instead of how many we have and maybe we should get a little more sleep at night and, you know, this and that. We can all have our own views and opinions about how the retreat structure should go. The reality is that, as we know, by this time in a retreat, at the end of a retreat, um, and those of us who are very experienced know that the retreat environment, the conditions are so helpful, so supportive. Um, And it's really tempting as we go out to make them more important than they are, you know, more supportive than they are, especially since the retreat is over. They seem to be more supportive than they are. (laughs) (laughs) Wasn't this way a week ago. (laughs) And we see we can cling to anything. You know, we see that it's actually possible for the mind to attach to anything. And so as we move into our daily life, our everyday life, our everyday wondrous and beautiful and terrible and joyful and horrible and devastating and exciting and everything a daily life is when we're around for it, you know, in the mundane and the ordinary, you know, as we move into our everyday life, can we remember that conditions are conditions and that the practice can live and thrive and develop and deepen wherever we are? All we need is a mind and a body. It's so convenient. 
This practice, this practice is so great because you don't need special clothing or, you know, special like equipment. Regardless of these magazine things where it says, you know, if you get this and you get that and all these meditative supplies, there are so many these days. I got carried away with the magazine thing. I got inspired from Christina about her. <laughs> Or magazines, but it is really amazing when you look at Tricycle or Buddha Dharma or you know any of these magazines. How many meditative supply companies there are these days is really sprung up. So we don't we don't you know I want to support these places because it's good livelihood, but um, at the same time we don't need anything other than a mind and body to be able to practice. We don't even have to have a great body, you know. <laughs> It's, it's, it's just whatever, however way things are. Whatever body we have is, is a great body. Whatever mind we have is the best mind to have. It's really um, something that we can um, allow as kind of our, our way in. You know, using this body and this mind as a way in to seeing more deeply how things are. When we practice in our daily life with this muddy water, let's stand, becomes clear kind of practice, what occurs is that we are more able to be sensitive in our life. Now, instead of blindly plunging ahead, we can be sensitive and awake. We can learn how to respond with delicacy, with tenderness, with enormous gentleness with ourselves and with others in our daily life instead of following our tendency to react in a very kind of instantaneous way. We can listen more deeply. We can listen with the depths of our hearts instead of having to always blindly follow our, our impulses. And this is just such a great grace and power of the practice. And all we need to do is remember to practice. We know what to do. It's remembering to practice that is the essence of this. When we do this, we can allow an emerging wisdom to guide us. Now, everyone on this retreat has had some degree of seeing things differently. Insight, inner seeing, inner sight. Seeing inwardly differently than the way that we did a week ago. And so as we go out now, um, you know, it's not really a case of going out. It's more moving into our daily life and really continuing to rest within ourselves. You know, not to be pulled out, but to respond you know, to outer conditions. And at the same time, to rest within ourselves, to know there is an inner refuge instead of being pushed and pulled by the torments of heart. As we know, getting to know the torments of heart, getting to know our patterns and our tendencies, helps us to recognize what they are and what our particular brand is, as well as just you know, what we all share. And also allows us to accept and be a little bit warmer towards our torments of heart and and tendencies and patterns without that secret sense of shame, that sense of, of it being utterly private and too shameful to be shared. You know, in, in acceptance and in bringing the warmth of metta in, um, 
it's we're not quite as afraid of ourselves. You know, we we lose our our fear of ourselves, and so we can rest within this world with a greater degree of dignity and ease. And so, in applying whatever we've seen, you know, it's it's recognizing and it's accepting the patterns and tendencies and torments of heart. And then it's not identifying, seeing what's happening as simply happening, arising and passing away. And so whatever inner seeing has occurred, whatever insights have happened, whether very tiny, and I tend to trust the tiny more than the grand in this, in this um, kind, of, kind of way of being. You know, so whether it's been tiny or whether it's been huge, to see if there can be a gentle, kind application in your everyday life, not to have, not to, not to use this as a bar. Now the bar's been, you know, has has risen because we've we've seen something differently and we've been a little bit different, you know. So now it's a higher bar, and now when we go down, and there can only be a crash, you know. Don't go out in that way. Um, see if it's possible to use everything you've learned here as an ally, as a friend, you know, so that it can actually be used not for the sake of further evaluation and judgment and assessing. You know, well, I knew that there. How come I can't hear? That kind of thing. But instead to, to use what you've learned here as a way to nurture yourself in your daily life. You know, that's the value of it, to really see if, if it can be embodied in a very kind and graceful way. Don't use this as a way to judge yourself. You know, use it as a way to really help yourself in the midst of sometimes incredibly complex conditions. So to really use the retreat as an ally and as a friend. One of the secrets in bringing the practice into our everyday life is to embrace our lives as they are. This is one of the tricks of living. I don't, remember, I don't know if you remember the Mary Oliver poem about going to Walden and uh, don't have to go to Walden. You know, the trick of living is, is to be right here and right now. Don't have to go to a green place or, or this and that. The green place is within. Yeah? So the trick, the secret, is to embrace one's life right now and to really try to relate, not in a Pollyanna kind of way, but to see if it's possible to relate to everything that occurs as a heavenly messenger. You know, the very big things that happen, the very difficult, the very complex, as well as from moment to moment, or at least every five minutes, the, t- <laughs> the times when we feel resistant to how things are. You know, just, to, just to see heavenly messenger. Looks like messenger from hell. Is it... <laughs> Oftentimes this is so. Is it, is, it, is it possible to kind of switch that around and to use it all as material for liberation? Yeah. To use it all as material for liberation. In leaving a retreat environment, in leaving today, there really is an invitation to uncover the peace that is within to uncover the peace that is there in the midst of conditions. To live our life fully, whatever way our life may be. Now, of course, this doesn't mean passivity. Sometimes on a retreat, we see certain things that really could be changed when we leave here. 
you know, we don't want to use our whole retreat that way because it's very easy to do that. This needs to be changed, you know, and then we have these, these agendas when we go out and we lose all our friends because, um, <laughs> you know, that's a really problematic way to look at things. But we do sometimes see something, a you know, conversation that we need to have at some point or, you know, some, some change that actually needs to occur. So it's not being passive. It's, it's using wisdom to guide us in the changes that need to happen. And at the same time, in our life as it is, can we embrace our life fully, whatever the conditions may be, so that the changes happen out of love and understanding instead of out of aversion, you know, and, and the other kind of forces that can push us around. It's so different when our motivation is wisdom and not aversion. Sitting is such a fantastic way to understand muddy water, let stand, becomes clear more fully and more clearly. You know, it really is an oasis in the midst of complexity. Um, I'd like to read you what? And walking. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to be having to say, like, sitting and walking <laughs> instead of sitting, walking. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I wanted to read you something by a nine-year-old girl named, named Ebony um, Hank. Um, and she was asked, what do you do when you meditate? This is so great. <laughs> I am quiet. I respect other people if they are trying to meditate, too. I sit very quietly, just like the Buddha would. I try to stay still and quiet as long as I can. When I feel that I am calm and I have let all my anger and frustration go, then I can stop meditating. (laughs) She's nine years old. Isn't it fantastic? Um, Or if I don't have any of these feelings, then it's just fun to meditate for a while. (laughs) Muddy water, let's stand, become clear. Yeah, we sit. We sit and we observe with non-judgmental, loving attentiveness. You know, we observe the, the ups and the downs and the huge waves and the smaller waves and the huge emotions and the subtleties of things. You know? And we just sit there and we notice that it becomes clear simply by being still, by sitting, you know, by being with things as they are. Now, sitting, obviously, is just a form, and we want to, and walking is just a form. <laughs> and we want to sit and walk, whether we're washing the dishes, or whether we're in the car, or whether we're with our children, or whether we're working, or whatever it is that we are doing. You know, in other words, this, this kind of like, um, um, what would you call it? Mm, it's kind of symbolic. You know, you can, you can sit while washing dishes. You can walk while um, walking through the um, office. You know, this, this kind of thing. Um, in, in other words, the inner stance of doing nothing and the sitting and the walking signifying that for ourselves. So it doesn't mean that we're always doing that. It means that whatever it is that we're doing, we have that attitude in life of being with things fully as they are of embracing things fully as they are. And at the same time, the sitting and the walking are ancient forms that 
you know, people have used for over 2,500 years, and I don't think they've wasted their time. You know, it's really, they're really ancient forms that we kind of slip into and become part of when we sit and walk as well. So finding ways to practice with the sitting, finding ways to practice with the walking. You know, it's so important when we use these ancient forms not to use them against us. You know? So in other words, not to worry about it when we're resisting, when we don't want to stop, you know, when we don't want to sit, we, when we don't want to pace back and forth, you know? when we want to do something, become somebody, get somewhere, accumulate something. You know, it's so hard to just stop. And so don't um, judge oneself when there is resistance to these forms because there's bound to be. You don't have to make it into a psychological, why do I feel resistant? You can remember that all across the world people are feeling resistant. You, know? you can feel part of things rather than, <laughs> rather than anything else, rather than making it into a personal problem. But then, you know, get thee to a convent, you know? Find a way to, um, to practice, um, whether that means calling up a friend or um, being, um, being part of a community, whatever it may be. Uh, find a way for yourself to continue with the practice. It is so helpful to have spiritual friendship. And, you know, um, in this particular community that we're in right here and now, It's just amazing. Over the years, people spoke to this last night, but we have become a community of women that comes together yearly. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really quite a beautiful and remarkable thing. And I invite those of you who are here for the first time to feel um, a total part of this community, to participate from now on, and to know that in between, what would it be, 364 weeks? Yeah, in between. What is that? <laughs> days, days. Okay, anyway, we don't get into the numbers. In <laughs> Those who know me know I have difficulty with this area. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, all the time in between, the one week in the year, everybody's doing their best. You know, we can rely upon everyone else's sincerity and earnestness. And so it gives us a place to rest. Yeah, it really gives us a place to rest. Spiritual friendship is amazing and essential. It really is taking refuge in the Sangha. Yeah. So if you, many of you in this room, CIMC, we have a very strong um, spiritual friendship place to be. Um, you know, find it for yourself somehow. You know, make sure that, that there is this kind of nourishment for you in your life. In the sitting and in the walking, try not to evaluate. Try not to assess. See if you can let go of plans and fantasies and worries. And see if there can be, at the same time, a very clear intention about what you're doing. One of the best instructions in practice is to know what you are doing. Just that. Just to know what is happening. To know where your body is, to know where your mind is. It seems like an obvious thing. We know at this point that it's not. So to know what we are doing is really a great practice. So many different ways to work with the daily life situations that we find ourselves in. Um, 
one way certainly is restraint. You know, t- there are times when we do need to use restraint when we don't want to. There are t- other times when we need to express something, you know, when we would prefer to be invisible, when we would prefer to not speak when we need to speak. You know, so noticing this as well. Being aware of the place of ethics and precepts because they are great friends, great allies. Um, you know, really, really one of the better allies we can have is our our um, relationship to living our life in a non-harmful way and really beginning to explore what that actually means for ourselves. Sometimes when we get into a crunch, um, working with ethics and the precepts is really the way to go. When we're not in a crunch, it seems easy. You know, of course, you know, I'm a fairly nice person, I'm this, I'm that, you know, no problem. But then when we get into a crunch, that's when um, precepts and ethics are so important. Really recognizing when calmness is the way that we need to relate to the conditions in life. You know, really just to be, just to encourage and nurture a sense of calm until we find our feet again. Yeah? It's very difficult for there to be wisdom without having found our feet, without having an inner sense of balance and, and steadiness, which is what calmness offers us. So in some situations in life, calm is what's required. Other times it's wisdom, you know, looking into something very deeply, investigating, seeing where we're caught, where we're hooked, where the attachment is, what may need to be let go of, what may need to be cultivated further. And of course, this is where Dharma friendship comes in as well, because we can help one another to look more deeply into particular situations in our lives. So... This is the retreat that men would like to come to. <laughs> I um, Sometimes at CMC, before this retreat, I find myself kind of sneaking out. Like, I don't make a big deal out of it because I don't want the men, lovely CMC men, to feel bad about not being able to come. But I have heard rumors of some of the men there wanting to disguise themselves <laughs> so, <laughs> so they could come. <laughs> And it does bring me a great deal of happiness that we were able to close the office at uh, CIMC and that everyone in the office has been able to be here. Um, It's been great. We left Larry and Michael at home to do their own thing. We hope it still survives by the time we (laughs) get get back. But it's um, it's just been a great joy. All right. Well, um, it has been a great joy to sit with you here. And um, I wouldn't really want to sit with anyone else in a construction site <laughs> other than all of you. So my great, um, my great gratitude to, to every one of you. I have this very warm, um, appreciative feeling about everyone in this room. Yeah. Those of you whom I, I have known for a long time and those of you whom I'm just meeting. So I'm, I'm just delighted. I'm just delighted with you. <laughs> Thank you so much.
think Narayan knows it would be something of a minor miracle if I managed to string a few coherent words together this morning. My smoke alarm in my house started chirping at three o'clock. So I've already had a very long day. It's only (laughs) 9.30. Just first of all, to mention, we have really enjoyed teaching this retreat. I mean, every retreat is wonderful, but uh, somehow this retreat this year has had so much depth and uh, well-being that it's, it's been a real joy teach and so we thank you for the sincerity of your practice which has actually made it that way and the sincerity of your effort Uh, also not to forget we also thank you for the dana and those of you who know us you know know that you know ever since we taught living on dana has been something of an adventure and it is actually what allows us to come back um, so thank you for that. Um, no, I am more or less covered everything. So uh, <laughs> sign off now. That was my few coherent words. I just wanted to continue reporting in from the land of newspapers and magazines. <laughs> I couldn't leave without sharing this with you. (laughs) The latest spiritual craze to come out of the U.S. should, in theory, be easy to follow. All you have to do is nothing at all. (laughs) Mindfulness is a form of meditation in which participants learn to observe the worrying thoughts explained Newsweek. It differs from conventional meditation in that its goal is not to reach nirvana. (laughs) Get that? That's, yeah. Just telling you. Yeah, yeah. In case case you didn't know that the goal is not to reach nirvana, right? Good, 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 good. Now, adherents claim mindfulness, which was first developed 25 years ago... holds a variety of therapeutic benefits. It's gaining ground is an antidote to everything. From type A stress to depression, said Newsweeks. Even the business community has jumped on the bandwagon. Business Week cited a study in which four dozen employees met once a week to practice mindfulness. At the end of the course, the employees had enlarged prefrontal cortexes. (laughs) A fount of wisdom. By the way, the article appeared under a, a part of the newspaper that said trend spotting. <laughs> so I would just like to start by disagreeing that actually the goal of mindfulness is to reach nirvana. 
And um, it's not a fix-it practice. It's not a fix-it practice. It's an enlightening practice. It's meant to illuminate our lives, to enlighten our lives, and to teach us how to be present in this world, which sometimes seems so mad, so irrational, so deluded at times, that there is a great need for those who know actually how to bring calm, how to bring wisdom, how to illuminate the moment, how to speak with a voice of clarity and act with a voice of clarity and you know, too often in our world, I think one of the greatest illnesses is the feeling, the sense that we make no difference. Mm-hmm. That we really make no difference, that it doesn't really matter what we say or how we live, that it doesn't affect things. But I think this is actually not true. Mm-hmm. We all know that a, a, a moment of loving kindness not only changes our heart of the moment, but can also change our world at the moment. A moment of compassion in the place of anger or ill will can change our heart of the moment and also contribute to changing our world of the moment. You know, and many of the changes in our own lives are not brought about by the heroic gestures of another, but sometimes by the small acts, the small gestures of acceptance, of kindness, of understanding, And this is something we participate in. We are participants in creating the kind of world we bring into being in the moment. Remembering that that translation of of bhavana, meditation, to bring into being. And I think if there's any great gift we discover on a retreat, it is that we can bring into being. You know, personally, I think that one of the real cornerstones that really sustains practice for us is confidence. Confidence rooted in our own experience, confidence to bring about our capacity, to bring about understanding, to bring warmth in places where there's aversion, to bring openness in places where there's contractedness. And confidence grows. You know, you've probably seen, I hope, your confidence in your own practice and your confidence in your own capacity grow in this retreat. Nagarjuna, a great Indian teacher, he says, what do you do with a life that doesn't go away? And I think the answer is we stop wanting it to go away. But that in itself is really, I think, a very huge, huge shift in attitude that we bring to, you know, the difficulties, some of the old tired patterns we would so like to be free of. We, we bring it to all, all the life, the, all our life that simply is coming to us, bring, coming to us each moment. Um, I would encourage, really, the continuing of uh, exploring loving-kindness practice in, in life. It's very powerful, very, very powerful and especially in meeting the times of ill will that come, the times of anger, the times of fear. Uh, Loving-kindness practice is a very powerful refuge. And sometimes that is really what is needed in our life, is a very powerful refuge. 
to really trust in that, to develop it, to cultivate it. You know, over and over again in this retreat, you know, we've given the instructions or the encouragement to begin, to sustain, to complete. This is also true of our life, to begin, to sustain, to complete. And the thing is that we don't actually know where the completion is. But the beginning and the sustaining is something that is, is very powerful. Don't be unforgiving of the moments that you stumble. People, we all do. Moments of amnesia, moments of forgetfulness, moments when we think that all of our years of practice haven't meant a single thing because there we are shouting at somebody or, or lost in fear or anxiety. Be forgiving of the moments that you stumble. Isn't that kind of like one of the major things we learn on a retreat? When we stumble, we don't kind of run screaming from the hall, pack our bag, and call a taxi. You know? We could, most of us don't, anyway. <laughs> Might have lost one or two. But anyway, <laughs> generally speaking, this is not the teaching. Generally speaking, the teaching is we stumble, and we begin again. We pick ourselves up. But what allows us to do that is generosity and forgiveness. And knowing that stumbling does not negate wisdom, it does not negate all of the efforts we have brought to our practice. But it is knowing that sometimes the conditions of our life, the conditions of our heart, the conditions of our mind are such that they are asking a great deal. And sometimes they're asking more than we seem to have in that moment. So we, they're stumbling. But the, there's not, the stumbling is not a problem. Despair is a problem. And I think stumbling, we learn, can reignite that willingness just to renew our intention. Haven't we learned that a thousand, a million times during the, these days? Renew intention. Reconnect. Begin again. It's another moment. It's another breath. It is another doorway to reconnect. So be forgiving. And please don't expect that somehow your practice when you leave a retreat is always going to be rich and juicy and rewarding, that it's always going to be linear and progressive. Haven't you noticed on a retreat, sometimes we sit pretty dry. So what? (laughs) You know, the instruction to keep showing up, keep showing up. It's all we need for a retreat, and in truth, it's all we need for our life. Just keep showing up, keep showing up. Um, It doesn't matter the contents. What really matters is that every moment of showing up is a kind of uh, deepening of commitment. It's knowing what we're committed to. It's really knowing the commitment to stillness, the commitment to understanding, the commitment to listening, and that commitment is something that is so powerful. Uh, there's a Zen saying, it says, watermelons in meditation students grow pretty much the same way. Long periods of sitting and walking. <laughs> Long periods of sitting till they ripen and grow. 
all juicy inside, but when you knock them on the head to see if they're ready, sounds like nothing's going on. (laughs) And that's okay. It can sound like nothing's going on. That's all right. The truth is we're there for nothing's going on. And actually, sometimes to learn to appreciate the moments when nothing's going on, I so like them. And nothing's going on. Isn't that a liberation? Wow. You know, isn't that wonderful? Nothing's going on. And sometimes to learn how to rest in the non-events of our life is for many people, especially the event-addicted, learning how to rest... In the non-events of our life is as much a challenge as learning to find equanimity with the events. And yet we have a lot of non-events, you know, and can we learn to rest, to replenish, to restore, to rest, to really learn that unconditional presence. That's the last of my coherent thoughts, I'm afraid. (laughs) Plum run out there. <laughs> a moment, a moment of mental collapse. Great. We're going to take a little time. If anybody has any questions, and Orion's going to have all the answers. <laughs> Does anybody have any questions? Yeah. The ritual around death, what is the Buddhist tradition? Well, there, there are different, um, uh, different practices in different traditions. Uh, one of the practices in um, the Tibetan tradition, for example, is that every day for, I think, 21 days, uh, you, you practice metta for that person. Mm-hmm. You sit down and you... You wish them well, you wish them happiness, you wish them well-being. And um, I've actually found that to be a very good practice. You know, It's actually a very good practice. Um, in monasteries in Asia, of course, death is really considered a teaching. And, um, you know, in monasteries that I've been into, bodies are brought into the monastery the cremations happen in the monastery. Everybody gathers for the cremations. And, um, you know, they're just outdoor cremations. They're not hidden away like we do. Um, and it is a very profound teaching of impermanence. And there's a, there is a lot of chanting and a lot of honoring um, of the reality of birth and death. And the encouragement to to meet that with with grace and with openness. It's a very open thing, death, in Asian Buddhist countries, you know. Um, and it's not something that necessarily scares people, you know. It's it's a very open thing. And people gather around deaths just like they gather around births, you know. And then, uh, like in, in Thailand, you know, sometimes, like the funeral's a big thing, but the funeral's sometimes years after the person's died. You know, because they really want a fantastic funeral. So the person's died, you know, and the cremations happened and all. And then the funeral goes on for days. 
you know, and there's food and there's chanting and a big picture of the person and a big celebration of the person's life, you know, and it's, uh, any more? There's more, I'm sure. There's... <laughs> Yeah, and, and, yeah, no, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> We're losing it. We're <laughs> on our way out. Um, uh, no, I... <laughs> okay, well... <laughs> she's not here for me. <laughs> you don't want to hear from her? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say that um, we're forging our own traditions here, yeah, our own Buddhist traditions. And um, I think we're learning and experimenting and taking some from the old, some from the past in terms of the chanting, you know, the ancient echo of the chanting. And then I think within our own communities as people die, you know, we had a big, big death in April, last April, and um, just it was quite, quite wonderful to see how the community related to it in terms of the humanness of the loss and the depth of profound sadness for this dear being. And as well, um, an equanimity and enormous generosity from many, many different people in the community. So I think we're, we're kind of forging our own way in these things. I mean, I I agree with that, too. And, you know, one of the ways that we do that, you know, because sometimes um, I've been asked to do a, well, to conduct the funeral of someone who's died. And, you know, it's very clear that the very important part of that is actually spending time with those who love that person and to get a sense of what would they want. You know, what would they want at their funeral? You know, um, you know. recently one of our staff, a guy has died, and this guy had this hobby of Morris dancing. I don't know if you know what that is, but it's, a, it's an old English kind of dance where people dress up in streamers and weird clothes, and they, they dance with sticks and all this stuff. And he wanted Morris dancers at his funeral. So there we had them, you know, dancing down the aisle of the place, you know. And actually, it was kind of really relating that the funeral was not outside of his life. The funeral was really about his life. And um, for those who loved him dearly and cared for him dearly, you know, it really uh, it kind of felt like a celebration of who he was, who he was truly, which was not the body. Got a lot to say. Many of us began this path, many of, those who, of us who are teaching at this point began this practice when we were quite young, in our you know, late teens and early 20s. And um, community has grown so much in the past 30 years. And, you know, I mean, there's just going to be more and more deaths, obviously, of, of in, in, within communities. So how we work with this um, within community, I think, is, is really, really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I 
Oh, ah, <laughs> got it. Going back to my Oh, isn't it? I think we need to. I think it's very important to bear in mind the context and the culture out of which this tradition grew. And you know, there's absolutely no doubt that at that time in um, India, it it was. you know, sex, there wasn't the word sexism, it was how things were. Okay, so this was not a kind of conscious belief system. It is how things were. Not only in India at that time, actually in most existing civilizations at that time. That is how things were. It wasn't sexism, it was just a belief, it was just reality. Um, so at that time, the tradition growing out of that, it would have been actually really rather surprising if it hadn't carried the color of that reality in, into the tradition. It did into all the traditions, actually, all of them. I don't know one where it didn't. Um, but is Buddhism sexist now? Well, what is Buddhism? Buddhism is people. Are we sexist? Actually, no. Is there a careful examination in some of the in, in the monasteries, an example, that are existing in cultures where that is not just the way things are? Absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. Um, did the Buddha did, was there an established order of liberated women in the time of the Buddha? Absolutely yes. Did it keep getting squashed over the decades and centuries? Absolutely true. Did it keep reviving? Yes. <laughs> but, I mean, I think it is very important, you know, to, it, it is very important to acknowledge it, it's, it, sexism, racism, all the isms do not belong intrinsically to traditions. They belong to people's minds. And certainly the practice of, of Buddhist, the Buddhist teaching is to overthrow the isms. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Amazing coherence. (laughs) Some coherence came. (laughs) And, you know, I think it's really important to bear in mind how very, very radical this teaching is in confronting anything that is held on to that causes suffering. And there's very little that causes suffering more than some of that holding. Um, you know, there was a, are you familiar with Deepa Ma? Anything about Deepa Ma? She's a... Yeah. Yeah. Well, she was really quite an extraordinary, um, tiny um, Indian um, adorable, extraordinarily awake uh, human being. 
And she confronted enormous amount of sexism, you know, in in her culture. But she was so awake that you know she she just wouldn't put up with it. And there's just there's such a great story of her teacher um, chatting with someone near her in the room next to her and and saying, well, you know. Um, uh, women can't do this and all this stuff, even though it was absurd because she she actually had woken up enormously. And um, she was just sitting, and you, you would think she was just not paying attention. You know, and all of a sudden, this voice comes out, anything a man can do, I can do too. <laughs> you know? yeah. I mean, in other words, women have not put up with this over the years as much as we might imagine it to be so. And I think... Um, I don't know, in the United States, there's more women these days, at least in the Vipassana tradition. Somebody was complaining to me recently about, um, you know, kind of there's not enough men. And I said, what? You know, all these years of not enough women, and now maybe it's tipped over a tiny bit. It's, you know, it's okay. (laughs) When I began teaching, there was hardly any women teachers in it. Almost none. Very, very few, in, especially in the Vipassana world. And, um, you know, I've had my own kind of uh, little confrontations over the world, you know, including in this room. Including in this room. I mean, I remember once coming in, teaching a retreat, and finding a monk sitting on my cushion. And when I sat down beside him, he almost fell off the stage in horror, but he got off. <laughs> so you know it's it the I I think it's I mean I feel absolutely so amazingly delighted about the transformation that I think has taken place in such an incredibly short period of time, and it is not just that ism that this tradition is challenging, but many isms, and you know it's it's our work actually. Is part of our work. So we're on a roll here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think we should. We're going to actually uh, end with a few minutes of dedication, if we might. The roof didn't fall down. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Fantastic. The roof's still up. So just for the last time, just taking a few moments to collect and gather ourselves. to offer a great warmth and appreciation to yourself for all of your efforts and your sincerity and your dedication, for all of the ways that you have supported not only yourself but all of those around you during these days with your silence, with your care, your attention. great appreciation for your own willingness to be present with that which is difficult and challenging, to 
appreciation of your willingness to embrace your life. And offering that, that warmth and that appreciation truly to each woman in this room. It's been so much part of the fabric of your own retreat, your own presence, your support there, kindness, your attentiveness. And to all of those here at IMS who so quietly and unobtrusively and so carefully ensure that we have this place of refuge, serve us, tend to our needs. Much metta, much warmth, much appreciation to them. Appreciating all of the benefactors in our lives, the family, the friends who have made it possible for us to be here now in this body, in this life. Out of that sense of appreciation, dedicating our practice to the well being of all beings. Whatever benefits, whatever kindness, whatever understanding may emerge from our practice, may it truly serve the welfare and the happiness of all beings. Whatever benefits, whatever kindness, whatever understanding grows from our practice, it serve those who we love and know, those who we don't know. May, it contrib- may they contribute to the well-being of those who are hungry, afraid, lonely, in the midst of violence and alienation. May our practice, whatever benefits come from our practice, Contribute to healing the suffering that exists in our world. May all beings be safe and protected. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings live with ease. May all beings be at peace within themselves. May all beings live in peace with one another. May all beings live in peace.
Atisha, Atisha, who was a wonderful Tibetan teacher, when he would meet people he didn't know, he wouldn't say, how are you? And those he did know, he wouldn't say, how are you? He would say, has your heart been kind? May you travel with safety, with wellness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.